This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What role has the U.S. Department of Labor played in the COVID-19 pandemic response? How is labor working to modernize the unemployment insurance program with the states? And what is labor doing to create customer-focused workforce solutions for American workers? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Patrick Pizzella, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor. Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Pat, before we delve into specific initiatives, would you briefly discuss the mission and continued evolution of the U.S. Department of Labor? How is it organized and what's the size of its budget? Uh, Surely. The uh, Department of Labor's mission is uh, very simple. Uh, It's to foster, promote, and develop the welfare of the wage earners, job seekers, and retirees of uh, the United States, improve working conditions, advance opportunities for profitable employment, and assure work-related benefits and rights. Uh, Just last year, uh, the department celebrated its 107th birthday. And uh, at the same time last year, uh, the country celebrated the 125th anniversary of Labor Day. So uh, both us and the Labor Day holiday have been around a while. And the department is comprised of uh, about 27 agencies and boards and has about 14,000 employees across the country. Um, Its discretionary budget is about $12 billion. And the agencies are led either by a uh, director or assistant secretary who's a nominee of the president and confirmed by the Senate. And they all report to um, the Secretary of Labor um, and myself. I'd like to get a focus on your specific responsibilities. What are your duties as Deputy Secretary of Labor? Uh, well, as Deputy Secretary, I'm the, the sort of the point person for the day-to-day operations of the department. I had spent uh, eight years here as a uh, Assistant Secretary for Administration and Management from 2001 through 2009. And uh, that portfolio includes a uh, human resources, uh, procurement, the budget formulation, and uh, basically the facilities, the nuts and bolts of the operation. And in the deputy secretary role, the assistant secretary position falls under me, but the uh, added responsibilities are involved very much uh, in the regulatory space. We have a robust regulatory agenda 
And the department, of course, is uh, uh, we have agencies such as OSHA and MSHA that play big roles in workplace safety. So there's both the policy aspect and the administrative aspect that uh, encompass uh, my position. Pat, with that context, I'd be remiss in not getting right into the COVID-19 pandemic response and the role your department, the U.S. Department of Labor, continues to play in the national response to this uh, pandemic. Could you tell us more about the overall effort here and what has been the most challenging issues you have had to deal with within the pandemic response? Well, as a government agency, you're constantly planning and preparing for continuing operations during emergency scenarios. I was here at the department during the 9-11 incident. That was a very dramatic moment, obviously, uh, in the history of the country. And it was also here during the uh, Katrina response. So, but each emergency situation is different and presents its own challenges. Uh, In the issue of COVID-19, you know, in a matter of days, our department of 14,000 or so employees uh, had a shift from on-site work assignments to teleworking and largely staying at home with their uh, family members, but at the same time, um, fulfilling their responsibilities to the public in delivering the products and services uh, of the Department of Labor. Uh, Our employees really responded in a fantastic way to all that, adjusting to the, the remote world. And um, the administration has been meeting this challenge head on across the government because um, everything sort of starts at the top. Uh, the, the, the president's national emergency declaration, the vice president sharing the coronavirus task force of which Secretary Scalia is a member of, a uh, very active member. And um, Congress and the White House passing legislation of which we've had a role in implementing and administering. So uh, we, as a department, uh, rolled up our sleeves and got right to work. Uh, There were some agencies that had a more particular role and responsibility based on um, the legislation that was passed, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act in particular. We had uh, responsibilities in the wage and hour, the workplace role of of how people were going to be uh, paid and how federal paid leave was going to be administered. And we had to do it quickly. Rules often take years sometimes to complete, but our wage and hour division, just headed up uh, by Cheryl Stanton, met the deadlines as prescribed in the statute. OSHA, which of course is responsible for keeping workplaces safe, and that includes essential services like uh, healthcare and the food supply. They stepped up and uh, they had to investigate quite a lot of uh, instances and situations, and they have moved swiftly to uh, ensure that hundreds of thousands of workers are safe. And that workplaces are safe, particularly as workers start returning to workplaces. And finally, uh, Congress decided to use the uh, CARES Act, as it's known, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act is its formal name. They use that act uh, to fund uh, and assist the unemployment insurance system. I'm sure your listeners are probably aware of that. The states all have their own UI systems. Some of them are very antiquated, and they're designed for what is basically a standard amount of unemployment claims. 
that are regularly filed in the country. We, of course, were at it. The economy was booming back in um, January and February of the be- beginning of this year. And unemployment was at an all-time low of a uh, 50-year low of 3.5%. And every single measurement and every single demographic were all-time lows as far as their unemployment rates, uh, regardless of where people lived or who they were. But when the pandemic kicked in, that was very different. And the UI systems had to adjust. And that was a a challenge uh, because uh, over half the state systems are 28 years or older. So we needed to come in uh, and uh, assist where we could. Okay. So, you know, organizing a department that has such a significant role in the pandemic response with respect to unemployment insurance or, you know, taking care of workers and workers' health and safety. Would you tell us more about the daily COVID-19 working group meetings convened by Secretary Scalia to coordinate efforts and response with speed and scale? And are there any lessons learned that you would like to share with us? Well, uh, Secretary Scalia recognized early uh, the impact that the uh, pandemic was going to have on America's workplaces and America's workers. And uh, so he, by nature, is an active leader. And he thought it was important that we bring together the agencies at the department to ensure that we had a a seamless coordination. And that meant uh, meeting twice daily, once in the morning and once in the evening, with the key agencies and the key members of the leadership team. Um, That would include, as I mentioned, uh, Wage and Hour, OSHA, Employment Training Administration, which handles the UI system, um, the solicitor's office, and others uh, on his staff, so that uh, we were in a rapid response mode uh, to respond to both the requirements that we were anticipating were going to be placed on us by the legislation that was being considered, and uh, the natural or inherent responsibilities that come with the UI system administration from ETA and uh, uh, workplace safety area in OSHA. So um, those meetings were uh, daily, twice, and uh, they were uh, comprehensive, but they were succinct. They were sort of action-oriented in the standpoint of that. There were uh, tasks that were raised and assignments were made and uh, follow-up was coordinated to make sure we were delivering on what we were supposed to deliver on in a timely fashion. And uh, things were moving quite quickly, particularly in, in March and April, uh, as the pandemic took more control of the, the economy and our workplaces. So, Pat, would you tell us more about the efforts of Labor's Employment and Training Administration, ETA, in response to COVID-19? How has it provided technical assistance to states, workers, and businesses in responding to the pandemic? And its implications. Yeah, well, the unemployment insurance program is a is a federal state partnership, uh, and it's administered under the Employment Training Administration. Here, we were fortunate that our assistant secretary for um, ETA, uh, John Palish, had come from a state, in this case Kentucky, so he had some experience, real experience at the state level for several years, and that was. Uh, invaluable as we had to deal with 50 different states. And as I mentioned earlier, most states have IT system infrastructures that are not 
configured to support this unprecedented situation with the volume of claims that were uh, we were being re- being received on, and particularly in April and in May, uh, and that over half the states had systems that are 28 years or older. Um, so uh, in March, ETA issued guidance that provided the states with a, a greater flexibility when it came to implementing their UI laws in recognition of uh, this crisis. And then once the CARES Act was passed, ETA worked around the clock to aid the states uh, as they worked to administer the uh, record number of claimants uh, that were seeking unemployment insurance. ETA also assisted the states directly in uh, the new Lost Wages Assistance Program, which uh, is funded through FEMA, but uh, the Lost Wages Assistance Program allows states to provide uh, now $300 per week on top of their regular unemployment benefit program to those unemployed due to COVID. So the role continues, helping the state's IT systems become more nimble and more responsive, uh, making sure that the uh, original $600 plus up got out in a in timely fashion. And now that we're in this uh, lost wages and assistance program period, to provide the, addition, the additional $300 a week to those eligible uh, that are unemployed due to COVID-19. And this is, and those plus ups, the 600 and the 300 are all on top of the regular unemployment benefit that states provide to their citizens that are unemployed. And those payouts vary from state to state. So uh, ETA has issued quite amount of guidance, uh, which provides the clarity necessary for the states and uh, have uh, working hand in hand with them. And as I said, the assistant secretary was once one of them. So uh, he had actually some personal, not only knowledge of those systems, but relationships with some of those UI administrators. How is the U.S. Department of Labor working with the states to modernize the unemployment insurance program? I will ask its deputy secretary, Pat Bazella, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Patrick Pizzella, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor. So, Deputy Secretary Pizzella, I'd like to continue our discussion on labor's role in the pandemic response. What is labor doing in the area of fraud prevention and mitigation 
across the unemployment insurance program moving forward? Well, that's a very important topic. Um, the department and the states have always been concerned about ensuring that the UI system is geared to prevent and or detect fraud. Improper payments pre-COVID-19 were um, something we had always focused on because it, it, it is challenging. Improper payments could be more than 10%. In some states, they were into the 20s in the past. So the whole concept of program integrity is very important. The secretary and the IG were in contact about the importance of being sure that with all these sums of money that were now being awarded out the door, that there was coordination to be ensuring that there was a high degree of program integrity. In June, we actually had a change. Our IG, um, Scott Dow, surprisingly left to go to the private sector, and he was a a very capable administrator, and we had worked uh, very closely with him. His deputy, uh, Larry Turner, stepped right up, uh, who we had been working with. We are working with them in being sure, again, that the program integrity is maintained. When there's so much money out there, it's obviously a target for scam artists and uh, others who want to, unfortunately, capitalize on this uh, unfortunate situation we face. And in the CARES Act alone, uh, $26 million of additional funds was given to the Office of Inspector to carry out audits, investigations, and other oversight activities. And um, we have been working with the IG and working with the states, encouraging them very much so to cooperate with our inspector general, because uh, we want to be sure that the money's going to the people who are deserving it and that people don't, you know, rip off the American taxpayer as well as ripping off uh, workers who are honestly entitled to these funds. So uh, we, we think we have a good relationship uh, with our inspector general's office because we we share the same goal of making sure the program integrity is is maintained. And as a follow-up, Pat, will labor begin taking a more prominent leadership position as it pertains to modernizing uh, unemployment insurance programs, uh, information technology? Well, we are, uh, obviously, first thing you want to do is stop the bleedings, uh, to borrow a medical term, uh, and make sure that uh, funds are getting out as efficiently as they can. But at the same time, we we took a, a holistic look at, at the systems out there. And the states themselves, of course, want to see upgrades. They want to improve their systems. But uh, unfortunately, uh, of course, uh, unemployment insurance systems at the state level are not in front and center uh, historically to get a lot of money to improve because by nature, everyone is optimistic that there aren't going to be too many people having to rely on uh, payments out of that system and the, those that are can be adequately uh, handled. Uh, so we are providing some uh, funding. We are also looking at and have been talking with the uh, members of Congress as well as with the, the governors to develop not one system, but a modern type system that states can sign on to that would make life much easier for all concerned 
for the next time there needs to be some national impact on a state UI system. And it would allow calculations to be done quicker and uh, more accurately. It would be more uh, geared to preserving the program integrity of the system. And we are cautiously optimistic that there'll be uh, some funding uh, dedicated to this in um, any future coronavirus uh, legislation. So, Deputy Secretary Pazella, what about the issuing of regulations to implement the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which provided paid sick leave and expanded family and medical leave? Uh, sure. Uh, we're very fortunate there that uh, much like ETA, where our Assistant Secretary uh, John Powers came from a state agency dealing with UI and workforce development, in the uh, wage and hour area, our administrator there is Cheryl Stanton. She came from the state of South Carolina and was administering uh, their programs down there in the, in the wage and hour uh, space. So we again had that uh, advantage of someone with some real firsthand experience at the state level who is now administering the program nationally. The department received uh, about $15 million in uh, the uh, FICRA, FFCRA Act, and Wage and Hour specifically received $2.5 million to support enforcement of that. Um, and so Wage and Hour's uh, work with employers in particular continues to provide relief to workers. They've had more than 1,900 cases already resolved and there are hundreds more underway. The challenge, of course, is to make sure we educate employers that they are in sync with the act and are administering it fairly so that their employees are receiving the benefits that they're entitled to under the act. So far, uh, they've had to issue some quick regulations. They've had to um, adjust also to uh, some nuances from state to state, and they have really uh, stepped up and done the job. They get a tremendous amount of visits to their website because they put up a lot of uh, FAQs, frequently asked questions, that they have found are very responsive to what the employer community is looking for in the way of answers. It's much easier if they can if an employer can find the answer on a website rather than have to talk to somebody because the answers are legally been vetted back here by our wage and hour division. And so these, this helps us resolve situations as quickly as possible. And uh, if there's a, a remedy that's needed regarding back wages uh, or leave or both, um, they have uh, protocols in place to resolve uh, any violations like that. And they're working quite well at that. And uh, the response has been very good. And it, it's not taking as long as we thought it would, which is uh, when we intervene under FRICRA, it's usually taking just days to resolve some of these in issues with minimal disruptions to businesses. Because keep in mind, most of these businesses are struggling and they want to have a quick response so they can provide needed relief to their workers and uh, can try to, of course, maintain uh, operating their business. So, Pat, would you tell us more about the work the Wage and Hour Division, WHD, has been doing to inform the American workers and employers about new rights and benefits while also you know, enforcing the laws to ensure 
workers receive the protections they need? Well, they, they've uh, so far, I think I mentioned earlier, they, they've concluded more than 1,900 cases under FICRA, finding nearly $2 million in back wages due to workers. There are hundreds more cases that remain open. And uh, they've conducted, which is important, 1,800 outreach events related to FICRA, constantly educating the public, which is really employers and workers in this instance, as to their rights and how to navigate through these uh, rules and regulations. And as I mentioned earlier, the visits to the websites, we believe we're really providing the answers in, a, in as real time as we can to uh, the employers so that things can get done care, carefully and, and efficiently. The public awareness campaigns that they've been undertaking uh, to reach workers and employers, there are a lot of public service announcements uh, in radio and television. They're both in English and Spanish. They've been going through social media. We have on the website some short educational videos and there's various online tools. And we, again, have found that uh, uh, very helpful and have been gotten uh, compliments and good response from the, uh, the employer community in that regard. So, Deputy Secretary Pazella, could you elaborate on the work of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, as part of labor's pandemic response mobilization? And in particular, how has it responded to emergent health and safety risks? And what is it doing in the area of return to work guidelines to combat the threat of COVID-19 in the workplace? Are there any innovative approaches being employed to, uh, to accelerate this effort? Right. Well, our, our principal deputy assistant secretary there, Lauren Sweat, uh, who's been there uh, since um, uh, 2017, and before that was uh, fortunate that she had worked on the Hill in this area. So she knows firsthand uh, how to implement legislation, having in the past uh, been involved in drafting legislation. And they have been working uh, literally since January in response to COVID-19 because they heard first first before many about a pandemic-related situation we're in, they'd get an early notification and read about things at the earlier stage before it, it generally reaches the, the general public. OSHA took part in congressional briefings with uh, the CDC and NIOSH on COVID back in January of this year. They work often with uh, CDC and NIOSH uh, because they're they operate in that same space as to uh, uh, workplace safety and health of uh, America's workforce. OSHA's inspections alone have helped to ensure more than uh, 570,000 workers are protected. From February through just last week, uh, our federal OSHA office received uh, uh, 9,500 complaints, of which 7,500 have been closed. OSHA's issued uh, temporary enforcement response plans to help protect uh, workers in the high-risk industries. They've issued industry-specific guides for workers in industries such as retail, construction, delivery services, manufacturing. They've issued five guidances aimed at expanding the availability of respirators for healthcare workers. And they've uh, published comprehensive guides for employers to prepare their workplaces for the outbreaks as well as returning to work. It's a two-pronged issue here. They want to help get workers back 
and see that the workplaces are ready for them, but they also have to be prepared for the possibility of an outbreak. And uh, we constantly, of course, have been reminding workers and employers about the strong whistleblower laws and regulations with which OSHA helps to administer. So they've been very busy in the COVID-19 space. Deputy Secretary Pizzella, labor has been instrumental in the implementation of many elements of the CARES Act and other related pandemic response legislation. However, aside from that, what other key strategic goals is the department focused on right now? Yeah, so, you know, OSHA's, of course, carrying out normal operations in addition to COVID-19. The uh, OSHA inspectors are continuing to investigate and inspect workplaces, uh, though, you know, a lot of workplaces have been shut down, but those that are open are, are, are still uh, being investigated and inspected as appropriate. Uh, and uh, whether there's a potential COVID-related hazard or not. So uh, life goes on. OSHA is one of our uh, larger uh, agencies here at the department. They have a, a, um, a staff of about 1,800 or closer to 1,900 now people uh, all across the country, and uh, uh, they're in the front lines uh, uh, of workplace safety. One of our strategic objectives in the OSHA space has been uh, uh, the, the tragedy of, of, of deaths and trenching on construction sites, and OSHA has particularly been addressing that for the last couple of years because it's, it's just unfortunate how that happens uh, and unexpectedly uh, in uh, what when some workers are are not aware or there's not enough attention being given to making them aware uh, that working in a particular sent, uh, situation where trenching is evolved can be very dangerous. So that's been a, a particular focus of OSHA for the last couple of years, and they've made some really good headway there. So, Pat, what is the Department of Labor doing to create customer-focused workforce solutions for the American worker? And, you know, how does expanding apprenticeship programs and the Buy American, Hire American executive order factor into these efforts? You know, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the Buy America effort. Um, there was a report uh, in 2010 that found... Um, the United States offered $837 billion in procurement funds. That's what they were spending. And uh, that's a lot of purchases of goods and services. Shortly after that came out, President Trump signed an executive order to level the playing field for American companies in the procurement process. And since that executive order, the department has decreased the use of the Buy America Act exceptions, which allow federal agencies to procure items from foreign partners in certain circumstances. We instituted new levels of controls on the procurement process to reduce the number of waivers. We issued um, letters to companies to remind them uh, of our preference for compliance with the Buy America Act. And we carefully started to track what was being spent in that area at the Department of Labor. And as a result, we're buying more American products, which means, of course, more American jobs and a stronger American economy than we had in the past. Uh, and from the standpoint of just offering some data, in FY 2017, the department made uh, 
26 exempted foreign purchases totaling uh, $732,000. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it's $732,000 that are it was being purchased foreign. The next year, the department made fewer foreign purchases and spent less money, $396,000. Last year, in FY19, there were no foreign purchases by the Department of Labor, and that's just three years after the uh, president signed the executive order. So it takes a little time uh, in government, but uh, we got there, and uh, uh, the purchasing of um, uh, American products means more American jobs, and we're very proud to participate in that. What is the U.S. Department of Labor doing to create customer-focused workforce solutions for American workers? I will ask Pat Bazella, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I am Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Patrick Pazella, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor. Deputy Secretary Pazella, what is the Department of Labor doing to work with and provide veterans, service members, and their spouses with resources and tools to gain and maintain employment? Yes. Uh, thanks for asking that question. Uh, we, we work closely with our federal and state partners to help workers, including veterans, make the transition back to the workforce and uh, what we're anticipating a once again thriving economy. Prior to COVID-19 crisis, the contribution of veterans to the American economy was at a historic levels. Unemployment uh, among veterans fell to 3.1% in 2019. That was the lowest annual veteran unemployment rate since 2000. In July, the veteran unemployment rate was at 8%. So we want to get the transition right for service members who are completing their military duties and transitioning to civilian life because it is, it's a major priority here for the department and it's an important initiative of the administration. COVID-19 has not changed the priority. It makes it more urgent. Last year, uh, we are a, a member of the Transition Assistance Program. It's an interagency effort. And our agency, the um, Veterans Employment and Training Service, provided in-person, in-person employment workshops 
to 172,000 service members at over 200 military installations uh, worldwide. After DOD suspended the in-person transition assistant program workshops due to COVID-19, the VETS staff immediately started offering virtual delivery, delivery alternatives to the armed services. So we are trying not to skip a beat in making sure that we provide that necessary and vital transition assistance uh, to our, our veterans. And we've made other efforts to further improve the, the experience of service members as they are trans transitioning. We have um, developed some specialized curricula for service members and, and military spouses. We've also engaged very much so in uh, helping and encouraging states to adjust and suspend and amend their state licensing requirements for certain occupations so that uh, military spouses, if they're returning from a, uh, an assignment overseas and they land in a particular state, that because they hadn't been in that state or a resident for several years, that's going to not make them eligible to immediately enter into a position and a profession that they're qualified for, but maybe a residency requirement is holding them back. We found a lot of cooperation with the states. Arizona has been very particularly aggressive in this space. We've seen uh, other efforts, uh, Texas, Colorado, and elsewhere, where the ability to make life, the adjustment back to the states for members of the military also uh, considers their spouses. And we're very happy with the progress there, but we know we can make more progress. So. Pat, would you tell us more about Labor's efforts to develop evidence-based policies, practices, and tools that can help it more effectively meet its varied missions? For instance, how is the department working to develop and complete accurate performance information that allows it to make evidence-based and data-driven decisions about such activities as job training programs? Right. Well, you know, we were one of the first departments, I think we were the first, to set up a data board and name a chief data officer uh, a little over a year ago. There was legislation that required this. We had been thinking about it prior to the legislation. Once the legislation was signed by the president, we jumped into action and we have um, a chief data officer. We have a chief, we have a data board that meets regularly. And our effort is very focused on using data to drive the decisions we're making about various activities, both in the workplace safety area and in the job training program area. Data is so important. It's, it, it's very helpful to know where there are actually job opportunities for specific professions. We're, we're seeing this in the apprenticeship space. Um, there are certain areas of the country where there are more need for a certain profession, uh, whether it's a, a welder or a, a, a mason uh, or a plumber. Uh, and we want to make sure that information is available to people who have those skills. So we have been very engaged in this whole ish issue of evidence-based and data-driven decisions. And uh, it's something that has is cascading down through our entire structure here. 
Deputy Secretary Pizzello, what is being done to promote union financial integrity and transparency? Well, uh, over the past three years, the department has taken an active role to protect the uh, interest of union workers uh, and their dues. We uh, recently announced the final rule that's been put in place that uh, requires many unions that had trusts of $250,000 or more to file a report on that. For years, there was no reporting activity on trusts, and some of these are multi-million dollar trusts. And uh, so now that information will be public and available to union members to be aware of. You may be aware that uh, last year we celebrated the 60th anniversary of the Landrum-Griffin Act, also known as the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. And that law was uh, it was a very bipartisan act of Congress. It was passed in 1959 overwhelmingly. The Congress was controlled by Democrats then, and the president was Eisenhower. It was passed overwhelmingly, and the Republican president signed it. And the two of the main proponents of that bill, one was the senior senator from the state of Massachusetts, uh, then known as Senator John F. Kennedy, and the chief counsel on the committee that drafted the bill was uh, a future attorney general, uh, his younger brother named Robert F. Kennedy. So there's a lot of history in that piece of legislation, and uh, we have been uh, utilizing that to ensure union integrity. Right now, we are... uh, about to issue a notice for proposed rulemaking to enhance the standard reporting of um, what's known as LM2, the Labor Management Report, that will bring more transparency on an annual basis so members will be able to see how their dues monies are being used. So, Deputy Secretary Bazella, would you tell us more about your efforts to improve the Department of Labor's human resource delivery and operations, and perhaps you could elaborate on the department's efforts to implement an effective shared services solution for HR, and what are the benefits of pursuing this? Sure. Well, the department's uh, making very, very good progress in implementing the president's management agenda, and uh, the shared service initiative is a key part of that agenda. And um, just recently, all human resources staff and services have been successfully transitioned to the new Office of Human Resources at our department. And uh, and we are about to transform, uh, transition rather, our procurement staff to the uh, new Office of uh, Senior Procurement Executive. We actually just completed that. So the centralization of this is uh, going to make us more efficient. It's going to allow the program offices to spend more time administering their programs and less time dealing with the administrative aspects of that. And uh, we are seeing more consistency and efficiency in the service delivery area. So we are uh, we're continue to look forward to more use of shared services, and we should be completing our IT effort very shortly. We consider that a big achievement under the president's management agenda. Uh, So, Deputy Secretary Pazella, what are the, say, three or five things, takeaways you would want our listeners to know about the U.S. Department of Labor? Uh, Well, that's interesting. Uh, One, uh, um, the three to five things I would would say, uh, first thing they might want to know is a little bit of history in that when the department was created uh, in 1913, 
it was actually the last act by then President Taft. Back in 1913, the administrations didn't change hands until March of uh, the year following a presidential election. Today, of course, it's everyone knows the date of January 20th. So Congress in March of that year passed the bill creating the Department of Labor. And President Taft on his last day signed the bill and he said in his signing statement that he signed the bill with considerable hesitation. Not because I dissent from the purpose of Congress to create a Department of Labor, but because I think that nine departments are enough for the proper administration of the government. And because I think that no new department ought to be created without a reorganization of all departments in the government and a redistribution of the bureaus between them. So that was the view of the world back then. But uh, he decided not to veto the bill and uh, because he said his motive in doing so would be misunderstood. So the department, it was an interesting birth that took place. Uh, and then, of course, as time marched on, it acquired um, more assignments. Certainly in the 30s, uh, the UI system that we referenced earlier in our discussion was established. And the Wage and Hour Administration was also established. Uh, as time marched on uh, through the 50s, we saw the Landrum-Griffin Act, which I referenced about union transparency assigned to it. In the 70s, OSHA and MSHA got assigned to the Department of Labor. The VETS, Veterans Employment Training Service, was assigned in the 80s. And in the 2000s, we saw the creation of the Office of Disability Employment and Policy. So the department has grown over time since Taft signed the uh, bill. And uh, it continues to focus on uh, its primary purpose, which is to, uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, to foster, promote, and develop the welfare of wage earners in this country. And if we watch out, particularly also in the area of retirees. We, uh, in the 70s, ERISA was uh, provided, uh, implemented by Congress rather, and, and the responsibility was given to the Department of Labor. So we're very much playing in that space of watching out so that retirees, uh, their nest eggs are safe, and that money that is being put aside is not uh, being treated as uh, uh, a petty cash drawer for uh, investment managers who uh, might want to be uh, engaging in uh, something beyond the fiduciary responsibility of, of which they are charged with. So uh, I would say that to you. I would also mention that uh, at the department, we are uh, our office building, our headquarters is at the foot of Capitol Hill. And uh, it's named for the longest serving Secretary of Labor in history, who was the first woman member of a cabinet, Frances Perkins, who served from 1933 through 1945 under uh, President uh, Roosevelt. What does the future hold for the U.S. Department of Labor? I will ask its Deputy Secretary, Pat Pizzella, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery 
by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can we become a mindful leader? And what tools and practices can be employed to better lead ourselves, our teams, and our organizations? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author with Rasmus Hugard of The Mind of a Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. So your book, The Mind of the Leader, explains how by applying these qualities that you just noted, mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion, first to yourself, then to the people you lead, and then to your ultimately to your organization, will lead to extraordinary results. Um, first, why is it critically important and almost foundational to understand how you lead and who you are? When we looked at a lot of leadership development programs today, they will start with external factors, like how good you are at strategy or how good you are at marketing or how good you are at finance. But it's kind of like building a house and starting with a roof. If you don't fundamentally understand who you are and how you show up, and most importantly, and this is really the mind of the leader gets into how your mind actually works then you're really missing out on the opportunities to be able to dive deeper into how you want to show up. What is your vision for yourself as a leader? What are the values that are important to you? And based on those values and that vision that you have for yourself of what kind of leader you want to be, how can you actually make sure that you work towards achieving those? And I think specifically for a lot of leaders, what we saw is that what got you here won't get you there. So leaders who are really successful rising up through the ranks in their career, they get to this inflection point where all of those great things that they were really good at, maybe they were really good at you know, strategy or maybe they were a creative type or maybe they were really good at engineering. And when they get put in that, that one leadership role where now they actually have to get others to be creative, others to be able to develop the projects and tools and systems, it takes a different mind. As you were doing your research, did you run across many folks who were in leadership capacities in those roles who were actually sort of living this particular perspective? Many. Okay. It, it was interesting because when we set out to do the research, we were looking for what leadership qualities sure. are going to be successful. Selflessness was something we didn't expect to see. We were pretty sure mindfulness was going to be one of the qualities, and it's also something that we've been focused on for a the past decade in terms of supporting leaders develop. But selflessness really came out, people like Dominic Barton, who is the uh, global managing partner for for McKinsey, 
it was one of the first thing he said to us is that I know if I walk into the room and it's all about me, if I don't leave my ego at the door, I do not learn anything. And this was over and over again. We saw leaders talk about how important it was for them to make sure that they really were intentional about making it about others. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Patrick Pizzella, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor. You know, Deputy Secretary Pizzella, uh, the Department of Labor has doubled down on its efforts to protect, support, and advance the well-being of the American workers. While much has been accomplished, in your mind, what more needs to be done? Well, I think that there are two significant areas that particularly as a byproduct of the COVID-19 era, and that's going to um, the workplace safety issue in general, both for the employers and employees, that is going to be with us for a, a, a good while, and uh, attention needs to be paid to that area. We don't know what will be the next COVID-19, but we need to be prepared in general. Our workplaces are always becoming more safer in this country. They have been for the, the, the last 100 years. Uh, the number of fatalities in industries, injuries continue to decline. A modern Factories and facilities and workspaces built, being built with safety in mind and efficiency in mind. So that is a very important area. And then when it comes to the issue of job opportunities and job training, we need to be very nimble. We need to be able to connect workers with the right skills to the right jobs that are out there. And sometimes those jobs are not exactly where the workers are located in this era of, of a mobile economy and a workforce that is uh, able to look up on a website and to see where a job opportunity is, we need to be a facilitator there and to be sure that um, we can connect A and B and be sure that the job training programs are truly offering job training that is useful in the 21st century as we compete in a global economy. Because we know we have a very, very talented workforce, but we also know that uh, there's a lot of competition out there. And one of the things we have focused on is that not every job requires a college degree. Most people in this country do not have college degrees. And that there are very, very good jobs that are available, uh, that high school degree and good vocational educational training uh, and apprenticeship training will enable a worker to provide for their family and make a good living and make a good contribution to the American economy as we continue to produce American products here at home. So, Pat, what characteristics um, make one an effective leader and what leadership principles guide your efforts and how you lead? Well, I, I actually came to public service under President Reagan years ago, uh, and I've uh, been um, in and out of public service over the years since then. Uh, this is my second tour of duty at the Department of Labor. I'm now 
uh, clocked in uh, 10 years at the Department of Labor in a presidential uh, appointed position, eight as uh, assistant secretary, and now uh, more than two as a deputy secretary. And um, if I had to uh, talk about general principles, I, I think one of the keys to a effective leadership is, is really clarity because it cuts down on miscommunication, it cuts down on confusion. Uh, I think uh, the workforce finds it much more useful for their work day and as they go forward in, in, in attempting to administer a program or, or develop something new, if they feel there is clarity coming from the top as to uh, what direction the department uh, is headed in. And I think uh, Secretary Scalia has been very clear at that from his first day here uh, when he talked about the take care responsibility that the department employees have to administering the laws here. And I think that provides a lot of clarity to our 14,000-person workforce. So, Deputy Secretary Pizzello, one last question. It's an, an advice question. As you reflect on your career in public service, what advice would you give to those considering possibly a career in public service? Well, I, I think it's a noble profession uh, for those who are seeking a career in it. One of the things that surprised me when I first came to the federal workforce is that not unlike other professions where you find people who are an engineer or a lawyer or a school teacher, that they'll often say they are a third or fourth generation doctor in their family. I found that it's amazing how many people will say to me that they are a third or fourth generation federal employee and their grandparents were at the Department of Interior and their parents were at uh, the Department of Treasury, and they have they started the Department of Labor. So I, I think uh, I find that interesting. I, I think it's uh, again an example that federal service is a calling for many, and that it is a uh, a noble profession uh, that uh, is important to the function of government. That's wonderful advice. So, Deputy Secretary Pat Pazella, thank you for joining us today. It was a real pleasure. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to this country. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed being your guest. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Patrick Pazella, Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.